Well, this this morning, uh, just a little disclaimer, uh, I, I got very little sleep and I had a lot of Mountain Dew this morning, so woo, I'm ready, all right? All right, well, hey, this morning, uh, I want to continue, <laughs> if you weren't awake, you are now, right? I want to continue a series that we've been in, we're kind of in the middle of a series uh, called Five Star. We've been looking at the habits of healthy members. And so far in week one, we talked about the fact that five-star members serve Christ faithfully, that they embrace the idea and the teaching uh, that God has equipped everyone for ministry and has called everyone to ministry within the church, to strengthen the church, to make the work of the church more efficient in moving the gospel forward. Last week, uh, Pastor Sean told us that five-star members embrace missions personally. The missions is not something we write a check to or something we can outsource to a group of professionals, but it's the call of God on all of our lives. And so to kind of summarize those two statements the last two weeks, God expects everyone to have a ministry in the church and a mission to the world. So if you ever wonder what God's will is for your life, a ministry in the church and a mission to the world. Tasha, I started 10 minutes ago. I just want to shoot. Yeah, so. Just, that was just a little joke. Anyway, and uh, so this, today we're going to continue that series and uh, we're going to talk about this idea that five-star members not only do those things, but five-star members embrace membership biblically, embrace membership biblically. And so since we're talking about the habits of healthy members, I thought it might be wise uh, to spend at least one message expounding on this idea of membership. Now, we've been very fortunate over the past uh, two years, so we've grown quite a bit and uh, we've had a couple hundred first-time guests uh, just this year and uh, this summer are looking at some stats this past week this summer our giving and our attendance has been the highest it's been in in many many years over the summer and so we are grateful to God for that however anytime that you start getting a lot of new folks who've been coming and kind of checking out and wondering what this place is all about and kind of hanging around and listening to those kind of things I think it's important uh, to teach the idea of membership because it begs the question in our current culture why join why commit? Why not just attend? Why not just kind of sit where I'm at and do those things? And does the Bible teach membership? Is that some tradition of the church? And what does it mean? And, and is it a, does it have a foundation in Scripture? Does it mean just walking down an aisle? Does it mean that my, that my name is on a roll somewhere? Which, by the way, and, and for some of you, this is going to cause you to doubt your salvation. We don't actually have a church roll, okay? And for some of you, that, that makes you nervous because for a long time, you've been counting on the fact that when the roll is called up yonder, you'll what? You'll be there, yeah. And so if there's no roll, there's nothing to call up yonder, then maybe I won't, you know. I mean, what about when the trumpet of God sounds and the morning the breaks eternal bright and fall? I mean, what about all that, right? Well, the idea is this, this, this idea of membership is in the scripture. And so uh, we have a computerized database. And I remember telling that to one time someone called the church. And this has happened on more than one occasion in the last 10 years. Someone has called the church and said, hey, I, I want my church letter. Like, what is that? I want, I want my church letter. And so if you can mail that to me. And so in their mind that we had this huge vault somewhere in the church and these thousands of files of these like birth certificates, you know, just lined up. Uh, they just call and get the church letter. And I say, you know, it's actually your name's just on a database. And I think they started to doubt their salvation just, just a little bit. It kind of kind of rocked them a little bit. And so if there's no role and we live in a non-committal society, is this idea of membership a biblical idea? Is it something? And if it is, then what exactly does the Bible teach and what are the expectations and uh, those kinds of things? And so we're going to walk through that this morning. And this idea of membership, it's not found in one paragraph. 
I can't say turn to this book and this chapter and everything the Bible teaches on membership is going to be found right here. Rather, it's a teaching that's at various points of the New Testament that you kind of pull those things together and pull together this idea or this theology of membership. So if you want to mark place in your Bible, we're going to be in a few different passages uh, this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 and 18. And so you can mark those places this morning. We'll get there. And then we're also going to spend some time this morning looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, so Matthew 16 and 18, uh, thumb and forefinger, I guess. And then uh, 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy 5 and 1 Corinthians 5. Just grab a tithing envelope or just, you know, somehow mark those four passages. Right. So that you can find those this morning. So. So we tell people and we teach, hey, that membership is a biblical idea. It's different uh, than attending. But then we never explain that biblically. We're just always pointing out there saying, hey, listen, you should be a part of a local church and, and membership is, is something that's important. But we never walk people through the scripture. And so they push back and they wonder, well, what, what's the big deal? I've never heard that taught or, or those kinds of things. Uh, but so we're going to look at a theology of membership. And so in laying off the foundation, I think we're going to start with a very simple question. This is going to be a very simple outline that we're going to walk through this morning. OK, and so I'm going to start off laying the foundation for a theology of membership uh, by answering just three questions. And the first question simply is this this morning is, is what is the church? What is the church? Now, that is such a simplistic question that almost should we even ask that? I mean, listen, we're sitting in the church and I, I, I used to go to a different church or I'm a part of the church and people in all over the world. Are, so what exactly do we mean when we're talking about this thing called the church? Well, Matthew chapter 16, uh, I told you we look at that passage and here's what Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 says. And Simon answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say also to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I mean, that's a strong statement. I mean, Jesus said the part of why he came is to build his church. As a matter of fact, he has such plans for it and such high hopes for the church that he's saying, listen, not even the forces of hell unleashed can stop the church and the building of the church. And my plan to do that. And so the, the idea is this. What is he talking about? I mean, is it bricks and mortar? Uh, is he talking about uh, a denomination? Uh, those kinds of things. And so but until we come to the place and understand the theology of the church, then this idea of membership remains fuzzy. It may not even be biblical until we can kind of lay the groundwork and say, hey, listen, when the Bible talks about the church, this is exactly what it's talking about in some concrete terms. OK, and so is it is it an eternal thing or is it temporal? Is it universal? Is it local? Is it the Catholic Church, the Baptist Church or is non-denominational more of the biblical model? I mean, it, joining a church, is it any different uh, than joining the VFW or the Rotary Club or a country club? I mean, there are some distinct things, but what does the Bible actually say about the nature of the church? And so here's what I'm going to do this morning. We're going to spend the first few minutes walking through a little theology this morning. And so don't go to sleep and put your thinking hats on. OK, you're smart folks and I'm not dumbing anything down, but we're going to walk through a little theology of the church. And there's a point to why we're going to lay the foundation theologically. OK, so if you want to sound really smart in a Bible study, you can write this word down and, and you'll know what it means and you'll press all your friends and neighbors. OK, so write down the word ecclesiology. E-C-C-L-E-S-I-ology. Ecclesiology. And ecclesiology simply means the doctrine of the church. 
That's what it's talking about. That's a big word, but it actually breaks down pretty simple. Anytime we attach ology on the end, it means the study of. And so theology is the study of God. And so we look at bibliology, it's the study of the Bible. Anthropology is the study of man. So let's see if you're tracking with me here. Angelology is the study of... Okay, that was a softball, okay? I'm, I'm glad you got that, right? Pneumatology, the Holy Spirit. Eschatology, the, the study of end times or last, those kinds of things. And so what, what is ecclesiology? Is it the study of ecclesi? What is that? Well, stay with me this morning. And so here's what the word ecclesiology, where we get this. The Greek word in the New Testament for our English word church is the word ecclesia. And that word is literally translated to call out, and it refers to a group that was called out to assemble. There's kind of a parallel thought in Hebrew in the Old Testament, and it's the word quahal. And it's found a hundred times, and it's translated this way, congregation, assembly, or company. And so when the Bible talks about an ecclesia, uh, oftentimes in a generic sense, it could be just an assembling of people for a civil matter, an assembling of people together for evil. There's actually some passages in the Old Testament about that. It could be the assembling or calling out of people together for war, or the assembling or calling together of people for religious worship or instruction. So this idea that a called out assembly is the word ecclesia, and it's kind of the idea of the, of the church and what that is. So, and I promise you we're going to somewhere as it relates to membership, okay? So, so stay with me this morning. The word ecclesia is used 114 times in the New Testament. 114 times. Of those times, with the exception of five, it refers to an assembling together or a called out assembly of Christ's followers. Now, five times it's just generic assembly. People coming together, convening for civil activity or whatever the case is, marketplace. But of 114 times, 109 times, it's talking about the called out assembly of Christ followers. Now, stay with me, okay? If you're with me, say amen. Good. Because we're going somewhere, right? So... <laughs> Someone in the front said supposedly, and so as Chris Anderson leaves today, let him know how much you've enjoyed his time here and that you'll miss him when he's gone. Listen, we're going somewhere, I promise. Here's the reality. When, when people talk about the church, and we use that word, and they describe being a part of the church, or I go to church, or those kind of things. When people are talking about the church, there's one of two potential meanings. Sometimes when we talk about the church, we're talking about the universal church, the invisible church. The, the part of everyone who's born again of the Spirit of God all over the world, those from the day of Pentecost who were, who were born again until the rapture comes, they're a part of the universal church, or what we call sometimes the Bride of Christ. And so everybody who's been born again is a part of the church universal. But other times when we talk about the church or when the Bible talks about the church, it's not talking about the universal or invisible church. It's talking about the local, tangible expression of people gathering together geographically, living in covenant community together. It's exactly what we're, we're doing here, okay? So sometimes it's the universal church, everyone born again of the church age. Sometimes it's talking about the expression locally, geographically assembling together, living in covenant communities. So, here's the idea. When the Bible talks about the church in a non-generic sense, it's 109 times. Of those 109 times that the word ecclesia is used and describes as the church, only five times... Is it talking about the universal, invisible, everyone born again by the Spirit of God person when it describes the church? A hundred and four times it's talking about a local, tangible, visible 
geographically gathered body of baptized believers living together in covenant. So let me break that back down for you. 114 times ecclesia is used. Five times it's just an assembly. It could be a civil assembly. So 109 times it's talking about the church. Of those 109 times, 104 times, it's talking about a local geographical assembling together of the body of Christ. Five times the invisible church. So here's the question. Here's the $64,000 question. So what? Hey, thanks for the theology lesson. Thanks for the ecclesiology. I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot at lunch today. So what? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Because here's the point. The idea that you can be a Christian and just float around as a part of the universal body of Christ, but never be committed to a local church is not the New Testament teaching. That overwhelming when the Bible talks about living out the truths in the context of the church, a hundred and hundred and nine times it's talking about the church. A hundred and four, it's talking about a local geographically gathered assembly. And so for everyone who just says, hey, listen, I'm kind of a little uh, spiritual butterfly and I'm just floating around from church to church and I'm a part of the body of Christ and those things. Listen, that is that is a small and hear me, a small fraction of what the New Testament teaches when it talks about the church. You know why that's so popular? Now, listen, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, it's talking about a local, tangible expression of the church. And out of 109 times, only five times it's talking about the universal church. But I promise you that's the more popular concept today. And do you know why that is? Because here's the reality. If there's no tangible, visible representation of the church, then guess what? There's no tangible, visible accountability and expectation. And I'm just a hand part of the body of Christ, and I'm doing my deal, and other people are doing their and I'm just kind of floating around out there, and I'm just going to kind of live for Jesus and doing those kinds of things. But, but there's no real commitment to a local church, or no real accountability of people shepherding me, pouring into my life. There's no real expectations that are tangible. And I think that's totally fine, but hear, hear me this morning. That is not the picture painted in the New Testament when it talks about the church. Now, here's the, here's the reality. When I teach this, when I talk about this, there is always pushback. There are always people saying, I don't totally agree with that. Listen, I know that you broke down the Greek and gave us the total number of times and the percentage is way off the charts. But I don't know that I totally put it. Matter of fact, I don't even know that I trust your motive. I mean, listen, you're the pastor. You're supposed to say that. Let me, let me just share some insight with you. If you don't know how the church totally works on the inside, you've always kind of wondered what's it like. I'm not telling you the local church is important because for every 10 members, I get a $50 gift card and a free toaster, okay? There's, there's no performance clause in my contract where it says, hey, if, you, if 50 people join, then you raise this percentage of those, all right? I'm telling you that because it's the overwhelming teaching of the New Testament. 104 out of 109 times, as a matter of fact, if you want to get technical. And so this idea that I can float from church to church and, and never join and never commit. And I go to one church because I like the youth group or Awanas. And I go to another church because I like the way they feed me spiritually. I go to another church sometimes because I just love the worship or I have friends there. I'm just kind of floating around. Listen, I hate to bust your bubble. That is not the teaching and example of the New Testament church. You said, gosh, you're, you're kind of serious. I mean, listen, I know you had a lot of Mountain Dew, but you're getting a little jacked up, Brad. Let me share with you how important the church is from God's perspective, how serious he takes this idea of the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says this. 
the shepherds over the flock, the church of God, which Christ purchased with his blood. Now, now, now listen, I, I'm not a great theologian, okay? All those stats I gave you on the Greek and the Ecclesiastes, I had to look all that up. I didn't have that memorized, okay? I just studied and actually learned that this week. But, but here's what I can surmise from Acts 20, 28. If Jesus Christ shed his blood for the establishment of the church, then it's probably worth giving some of my time, talent, and treasure towards. It's probably worth investing some of my life into if he gave his life so that it could be born into existence. And I'm not a great theologian, but that kind of makes sense in my finite, limited thinking. And so what, what, does that, what does that actually mean? So, so listen, I get that. I understand that's the teaching of the Bible. I understand that it's a serious deal that Christ shed his blood for the establishment of the church. I understand all of those things, and we're going to move on in just a second. But I want you to understand just a little bit more this morning about the theology of the church and realize the part and peace that it plays in the bigger picture of what God is trying to do in redemptive history. All right? So I'm going to give you a church history lesson from Old Testament to eternity in about one minute. All right? So you need to listen fast. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel. Why? Because he's God and he wanted to. That's the only explanation I can give you. And so God called out Israel as his chosen people, but they rejected the one true God and were involved in wandering and idolatry and wickedness and all those kinds of things. And so uh, they just weren't willing to carry the message of the Messiah forward. And so God placed them on the back burner. Matter of fact, the Bible says that God divorced himself from Israel. But a better concept is to think of it as a legal separation because God has a future plan to restore a faithful remnant of Israel in the future, okay? And so God's placed him on the back burner. He said, listen, you're not going to carry the message on. I'll find someone else who will, and you sit back here. And so God said, you know what? I need someone to carry this message on. And so God birthed this thing that we call the church. And at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit of God came down on men's heads like cloven tongues of fire, and each man spoke in a language but heard in their own, then guess what? That was the birth of the church, and 3,000 people were added to the church that day. And that will exist, that church age will exist all the way until the rapture of Jesus Christ. And so what started at Pentecost and what will end at the rapture is the church, and God has chosen the church to advance the gospel and move the ball down the field for all of eternity. Listen, we're just not doing this because we're bored. We're just not gathering together because we have nothing else we could be doing right now, right? But the Bible paints this picture that this is what God thinks about when he thinks about the church. And God says, listen, I know it's dysfunctional. I know that it can get messed up. I know that people do stupid things in the church. I know some of the meanest people you've ever met in your life sat across from you at a deacon's meeting. I understand all of those things. But this is still my plan to move the ball forward for eternity. And so God takes it serious. Israel was called the wife of God in Scripture. And the church is called the bride of Christ. And so one writer said this, he said, when you say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, he said, that's the equivalent of telling someone, I really like you, but I hate your wife. And so Israel rejected the Messiah and God placed his hand on the church and said, I'm going to use this to advance the kingdom forward. And so can we say amen this morning to the fact that from God's perspective and the theology of the New Testament, that the church is a pretty big deal to God. Can we say amen to that this morning? Now, when we say amen, the question is, is it in your life? Listen, I'm fine with total abstract theology, right? 
Listen, I understand. I can't argue with the Greek and how that breaks. Listen, I mean, it, it's there. Listen, I get it. I get that it's important. I get that it's the vehicle that God chose. But is it, does that importance reflected in my own life? Is it worth investing my time into? I'd argue that the church is worth giving your life for. I would argue from a theological perspective this morning that the church should be the most important commitment in all of your life. I would argue this morning on the basis of New Testament ecclesiology that the church, which is God's mission to advance the gospel, should be the most important organization you're ever a part of. I would argue that everything else is secondary in comparison. I would argue on the basis of the Word of God that the church is more important than your kid's Little League career. I would argue on the basis of ecclesiology that the church is worth investing generously in instead of tipping God like he's some kind of cosmic waiter and I enjoyed the service today. Here you go, God. I would argue that if Jesus Christ gave his life, gave his life for the church, that it's worth investing a part of yours in and investing generously. And I would argue that on the basis of the word of God. I would argue those things on the New Testament. And the word amens mean I agree. And so if you agree with that, you better make sure your life reflects it. Next question. So what is the church? Next question is this. Is membership a biblical concept? Listen, I get it. I, I get that this idea of the universal church. I'm just floating around. I'm part of the body of Christ. Not accountable to anyone. Not, no one's shepherding me. Not building any relationships. Not serving. Not giving. I'm just floating around as the body of Christ. I get that that's not the teaching of the New Testament. It's just a small fraction. I get that. And that the local church gathered together geographically to advance the gospel in that mission field. I understand, Brad, that it's important. I get that. But is membership a biblical concept? Do we see it modeled in the New Testament? Let me just hit this quickly by looking at some passages that I told you to mark earlier and just a couple other ones. And we're just going to look at these, these passages this morning. And I think as we just walk through, we can walk through some other ones. You'll get the idea that membership is not something I'm pushing as a church tradition. It's not something I'm pushing again so I can get a free toaster when my review comes up. I can see something clearly that the Bible teaches this. All right. Matthew chapter 18. Look this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Matthew chapter 18 says, when dealing with a sinning brother, there's that accountability again, tangible, visible. It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word may be established. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him like an unbeliever. If they're not willing, if they openly reject the counsel of God's word, then you can, you can just say, you know what? It's hard to argue that person is a believer when they openly reject the counsel of God's word. And so here's the idea. The ability to exclude someone from the church presupposes that it's known who belongs to the church as a member in the first place. I mean, it just, it, just, it just makes common sense, right? The idea that I'm going to remove someone from membership is presupposed the idea that we actually know who, who identifies in this aspect of membership. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, Paul is giving Timothy instructions for enrolling widows on the list of those receiving uh, support from the church. And so here's what he writes. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. 
Okay, so if you're here and you're a widow and you're 59 and a half, we're cutting off support. And I hate to share that from the pulpit, right? I, I'm totally kidding, right? Not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. Now, this is not a conclusive evidence for formal membership, okay? This is more the combining these, these together to form a theology of membership. But it's tough to imagine that the church in Ephesus would have kept a list of widows, but not have any formal means of identifying others who belong to the church. That there was some kind of list or some kind of record keeping to say, hey, listen, of these folks here, these folks put, put, remove them from this and put them on this, if there was not some kind of formal record and membership going on at the church of Ephesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. He says, for what I have to do with judging outsiders. Now, now listen, let, let me just, just say something here. So many times I've heard this idea that, that, that we're, we're not to be judging each other and, and that this shouldn't go on and, and judging, you know, only God's a judge and, and those kinds of things. Okay, listen, I've just heard that over and over and over. And let me, let me just set the record straight. That is not the teaching of the New Testament. Okay? That is not the teaching of the New Testament. You know that verse, uh, judge not lest you be not judged, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, I heard not too long ago that at a point in time, I don't know if this is still true, the stat's about four or five years older, that that was the most well-known verse in all the world, even surpassing John 3.16. Because that's the culture we live in. I mean, people who don't know anything about the Bible, people who have no affection for the house of God, people who have no connection to Jesus Christ at all, they know that verse, do they not? And when a Christian comes down and, and, and in their mind, you're judging me, they, now they don't know where it's at. I've had people say that, well, done the Bible. I say, it does. Do you know where that's at? Actually, I don't, but it's in there. And so that's the idea. And that idea is carried over into the church. That we shouldn't be evaluating what's going on for those who remember. We, we shouldn't be doing that because that's judgmental. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Listen closely. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Do you see that? I mean, that's black ink on white paper. And then he goes on and said, God judges those on the outside. What he's saying here is this. Listen, don't worry about those who don't know Christ. God will take care of that in the end at the, uh, at the judgment seat, okay? The great white throne judgment. God, God will deal with that, okay? But he's saying those who name the name of Christ, those who are formerly associated with the church, there, there should be some judging of their behavior so that their behavior does not bring reproach upon the gospel and upon the church as the visible representation of the gospel. There's another word for it. If you don't like the word judge, then just think about this. It's accountability. It's tangible accountability. And that should be taking place in the church on an informal and sometimes on a formal basis. And so Paul called upon the Corinthian church to judge those who are inside the church, not those who are on the outside. They're responsible for the testimony of those who belong to the church. I, I can't tell you how many times that someone who doesn't profess to know Christ isn't connected to a local church. They just do something that's totally crazy and people are like, can you believe that? Can, 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 you, can you believe they were, they were doing that? Folks, listen, write this down and memorize this, okay? Don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians and don't hold non-Christians accountable to standards for Christians. All right? Listen, God says, listen, I'll, I'll take care of those on the outside. 
But when a person places themselves under the accountability of the church, then guess what? There should be some evaluating and some inventory taking that takes place. This passage makes no sense in the Corinthian church. They didn't have some kind of public, formal means by which people identified themselves with the church. Who do you know? How do you know who's on the outside? How do you know who's on the inside? There's no way to know that that passage does not make sense apart from the process and the idea of formal membership. And then the last one, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul writes to man uh, in the Corinthian church had been excommunicated, church discipline, put out of the church, however you like to think about those terms. Here's what he says. He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by the excessive sorrow. This man's exclusion from the church uh, was punishment by the majority. How do you know if you have a majority apart from having a set number of people who belong to the church? You don't. It doesn't even make sense apart from that. And so can we conclude, can we get honest this morning, that looking in verse after verse and comparing and deducting from the teaching of the New Testament that this idea of membership is not my agenda, it's not the Southern Baptist Convention's agenda, it's not Liberty Heights' agenda, it's the plan and purpose of God as revealed in the New Testament. We look at some other passages, but I think we get the point. There's no verse that says, thou shalt join the church. But I think we can conclude with biblical integrity that this is taught in the, in the New Testament. Pastor and scholar Mark Dever put it better than I ever could, and I quote, he said this. He said, Jesus established the church to be a public earthly institution that would mark out and affirm those who profess to believe in him. He said, Jesus wants the world to know who belongs to him and who doesn't. And how is the world to know who belongs to him and who doesn't? They're to see which people publicly identify themselves with his people in the visible public institution he established for this purpose, the church. He says, they're to look at the members of his church. And if some people claim to be a part of the universal church, even though they belong to no local church, they reject Jesus's plan for them and for his church. End quote. Listen, hear me this morning. I'm not trying to get a free toaster. I'm fat enough as it is, okay? Amen? It's good. I'm just imploring and challenging you that it's the overwhelming teaching of the New Testament. And this idea that I can be kind of a spiritual butterfly as a part of the universal church and float around and do my Jesus thing, all those kind of things. Listen, that is not the teaching of the New Testament. Over and over and over. Last question. What's involved in biblical membership? What is the church? Local believers, baptized believers, living geographically gathering together. What's the plan of the church to advance the gospel? And I know it's inefficient sometimes, but it's still God's plan. And this membership taught and modeled an example of the New Testament absolutely over and over and over. It's the teaching of Scripture. So what's involved in biblical membership? What does the Bible expect membership to look like? What does the Bible teach about this? So I'm just going to use two simple thoughts and then we're done. I'm going to lay this first one out and then I'm going to give a little disclaimer. Idea number one in, in biblical membership is this, that biblical membership involves submission to spiritual leadership. Now, I'm just going to be totally honest with you. I'd rather not teach that. I'm fully aware of how self-serving that sounds. I'm fully aware of what that sounds like. But no matter how uncomfortable it makes me, it doesn't change the fact that the Bible teaches it and it teaches it clearly. And, and listen, they, they could totally change my title here and I could be the official king of nothing and I'd be totally fine with that, okay? 
I'm not, I'm not hungry for more power and people getting under me. Listen, I can't keep up with the people we already have. A church our size would normally have five full-time pastors. We, we, we've got two. And so I'm not trying to say, I need more people under me. I can't keep up with the ones we have. That's why you should be in a life group so you can get shepherd and minister to in the body of Christ. But this is the clear teaching of Scripture. You see, where's that at? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Woe is that pastor who ever lords his authority over the flock because one day this passage says he will stand before God and give an account of how he shepherded the flock. And listen, I may be the pastor here or the overseer or whatever term you want to use in the the original language, but here's the idea. You don't belong to me. You belong to Jesus Christ. And so I had better take that serious when I'm operating as the under shepherd under his authority, who he is, the head of the church. The only senior pastor here is Jesus Christ. And so, God forbid, woe to the pastor who gets on an authority high horse and says, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in charge here. Listen, you better take this verse serious. Because not only does it say submit to those in leaders, it also says, leaders, you're going to give an account of how you pastor God's church. And what does he say? He says, obey them. What does that mean? I looked it up in the Greek. It means obey. I cross-referenced it in the Hebrew. Guess what it meant? Obey, yeah. Obey them, your spiritual leaders. And just by, by the way, I don't want to get on a tangent. I think the New Testament teaches a plurality of elders. This idea that this, there's one senior pastor kind of operating as a CEO, I don't see that taught a whole lot in the New Testament. That one guy's calling all the shots kind of a thing, okay? Different sermon, different teaching, different day. That's my last master's thesis I had to write was on this issue. All right? So this idea of the pastor as CEO is incredibly unbiblical. Do you hear me? This isn't a business. This is the flock of God. This is the house of God. This is the bride of Christ. Can I get an amen? Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. 1,500 pastors a month quit the ministry. 1,500 a month. You know what the number one cause was? Conflict with members about who's in charge. Number one, number two cause, I'm sorry. Number one was moral failure. Number two, conflict with members, the battle for leadership. Can I tell you how many times I've consulted a church and I've walked in, that pastor so discouraged. I said, hey, what's going on? I said, hey, you should be doing this and this. And here's what about this? And they won't let me do that. I said, I thought you're in leadership. He said, I thought so too, but I'm not. He said, they just want me to preach and do weddings and funerals and come and see you in the hospital. They don't really, I'm not interested in lining up under my authority. I said, have you taught the scriptures? No, too scared. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account, so they better take it serious. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see that? Is that anywhere else? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Can I tell you what I've learned in the last ten and a half years? That people like to listen to me preach a lot more than they like for me to hold them accountable. 
They don't listen. I mean, you, you preach and, you know, get fired up and jokes. and you know, Yeah, we like that. But when the place and time comes, when I have to walk into their life and say, hey, listen, your life's bringing reproach on the gospel and on the church, his vehicle for advancing the gospel. And I'm calling you to come under the authority of the church and spiritual leaders and line yourself up with the scripture. They don't really care for that. As a matter of fact, I've got some letters and emails on file that you, you would not believe. And hear me this morning. It is the absolute most unpleasant part of the ministry is to call someone and say, hey, we need to meet. And I love you. And the reason I, I'm calling you is because I love you enough that I don't want you to destroy your life and destroy the, the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you to repent of what you're doing. It's the worst part of my job. It's the worst part of my job. But folks, can I tell you this? That when I'm calling you to submit to spiritual leadership, that I'm submitting myself to the headship of Jesus Christ. And whether I like it, whether it feels good, whether it makes me popular or not, I don't have a decision in the matter because I'm under the authority of Jesus Christ. This is not a country club. It's not a weekly pep rally. It's the church of the living God. And Jesus Christ gave his life for it. So we had better take it serious. Simple question. Is accountability crucial to spiritual growth? Of course. Is placing myself under the shepherding of an elder a form of accountability? Of course. So number one, submitting to those in, in spiritual leadership, biblical membership. Number two, active participation. Now hustle, we're out of time. Active participation. Do you realize there's a list of commands in Scripture called the one another's? Let me let you know a secret. You can't live out the one another's if you're not there. Think about that. It's deep, right? I can't live out the one another's if I'm not present. You can watch someone preach on TV. You can mail in money, but you cannot use your gifts or build deep relationships in your living room. And I think one of those unbiblical ideas that we've embraced in our current Western Christianity is this. It's the idea of inactive membership. You know what inactive membership is? It's an oxymoron. You don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. Not, not one single time do you find that teaching in the New Testament. Not one single time. It's an oxymoron. And I'm on a roll somewhere, so listen, when it's called up yonder, what? I'll be there, right? Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. How do you live that out? How do you motivate each other as an inactive member? You see, the standard of membership in the New Testament is a high bar, and we've lowered the bar, and here's what we've said. You don't have to show up. You've been an active member for years and years, and you don't even have to show up. And the reason we do that is because we feel better about someone's salvation because their name's on some roll somewhere. But hear me this morning, that is not taught or modeled in the New Testament Scripture. The Bible's so clear in what we've covered today. Listen, I, listen, I know it's heavy. I know we've walked through a lot of theology. I know that for some of you, you're thinking, I just want to slither out of here and do this. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. I'm just telling you that this is what the Bible teaches. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Local church is the God-chosen vehicle to advance the gospel. Christ shed his blood to establish the church. And New Testament Christians made formal commitments with responsibilities to local churches. The Bible is incredibly clear on that. And so the only thing that's not clear this morning is how you're going to respond. 
And so let me give you a chance right now to clarify that very issue. I invite you to bow your heads this morning.